Abraham Lincoln once said, Our government was of the people, by the people, and for the people. However, sometimes they are of, by, and for only themselves. Usually the belief in extraordinary people with superhuman powers stays in the world of entertainment, like comic books and movies, but at one point the DIA started investigating to see if this special kind of person could truly walk among us. In 1978, the Defense Intelligence Agency developed a project entitled the Stargate Project. The mission was to find citizens who possess the ability of remote viewing. Wikipedia defines remote viewing as the ability to physically see events, sites, or information from a great distance. The military sought out citizens to undergo tests to determine if they had the capabilities to view remotely. Their plan was to use these individuals to ascertain information regarding their enemies and use it to get ahead of them. One of these civilians was a man named Pat Price, who was able to use his ability of remote viewing to see facilities behind Soviet lines, sketching what he saw. These sketches were later confirmed with photographic evidence of the Soviet base. But the most interesting case is that of an unnamed civilian who was documented remote viewing life on Mars in 1 million BC with the guiding voice of someone only known as Monitor. The civilian known as Subject detailed what he or she saw on Mars. They were able to see structures like obelisks and underground caverns. It was even documented that they spoke with one of the alien entities and found out the species was waiting to leave their decrepit land to find a new, flourishing one. The Stargate project was shut down in 1995, and the records were published for public consumption. The project has garnered many skeptics, but there are still those out there who believe they have the ability of remote viewing. As American citizens, we value our privacy and take comfort in knowing that our information is secure but we may not be fully aware of the injustice happening right under our fingertips. Edward Snowden is famous for blowing the whistle on the National Security Agency, revealing information he was privy to about their invasive actions on the people of the United States. But Snowden isn't the only whistleblower the NSA has encountered. In 2006, Mark Klein, a former AT&T technician, chose to speak up about a covert operation between the NSA and his employer, in which they struck a deal for the NSA to occupy a small room in one of their buildings in San Francisco, room 641A. Fiber optic cables were wired from all around the building and fed into this room where machines tracked every email, phone call, and web search from everyone in the country and some countries overseas. The NSA hadn't obtained a warrant to carry out such an invasive operation, nor did they make any attempts to separate potential threats from everyday citizens just going about their business. And as discomforting as it may sound, they had no intentions of informing the American people. The information recorded came from more sources than just AT&T. 
It came from essentially any internet and communications-based company in the country. Mark Klein, a hero of the people, held the NSA and AT&T accountable by taking them to court. However, they stood by their claims that they were merely recording information that involved just the Middle East, and the case was consequently dismissed. CIA Operation Mockingbird was declassified and released to the public in 2007. You can research the operation online, but if you look to the news for information, don't expect to find any mention of it whatsoever. Dubbed the Skeletons in the CIA's Closet, Operation Mockingbird was created as a way for the government to control what news stories they wanted the American people to consume. Established in the early 1950s and led by Frank Wisner, a member of the National Security Council, Operation Mockingbird sought out top American journalists to essentially break the moral ground they stood on. By 1953, the CIA controlled over 25 newspapers and wire agencies. They stated their original intention was to misinform the Soviet Union on what was happening in America with false articles and reports. But as the operation was investigated, it was clear they had intentions of controlling American citizens as well. Writer Deborah Davis was the first to speak out about the operation. Davis reported information about Wisner and Operation Mockingbird in her 1970s book entitled Catherine the Great, written about Washington Post owner Catherine Graham. The CIA was eventually questioned about the operation, but by that time they had cut ties with nearly all of their paid journalists and never really answered for their actions. Although Operation Mockingbird was shut down and eventually declassified, many American citizens remain diligent and continue to question their government. It wasn't enough for the CIA to orchestrate news outlets as they did in Operation Mockingbird, but they also felt the need to covertly spy on members of counterculture groups. The 60s and 70s were known for the hippie movement, an era that focused on love and peace. It abounded with student groups that were anti-war, anti-racism, and anti-hate. It was these sentiments that worried the government and led them to establish Operation Chaos in an attempt to uncover citizens that they believed were under the influence of foreign ideals. In other words, they were looking for enemy sympathizers. Though the operation began as an infiltration on foreign anti-war groups, it grew to include many significant American groups as well. Some of the groups targeted in Operation Chaos include the Black Panther Party, Women's Strike for Peace, and Rampart's Magazine. At the close of Operation Chaos, it was reported that the CIA had gathered intel on 300,000 Americans and about 1,000 anti-war groups. But all that time, effort, and intrusion that the CIA had imposed on the people of America had amounted to nothing. It was reported that no evidence of any contact between the most prominent peace movement leaders and foreign embassies in the U.S. or abroad had made contact. We are told the government is there to keep us safe, but in regards to Operation Chaos, we must ask the question, who are they trying to keep us safe from? Have you ever felt like someone or something was watching you? Your imagination may suggest spirits or serial killers, but maybe it is Big Brother. 
After World War II, the United States and the United Kingdom formed an agreement to help monitor each other's countries for possible threats. Over time, more countries wanted in on the agreement. However, as the alliance gained members, the objectives started to change. The United States, the United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand became the Five Eyes Alliance, and their pact was to keep watch over the citizens of the entire world. Not just suspects involved in terrorism or enemies threatening war, but each individual person. They set up monitoring stations all over their countries, comparable to Room 641A. These governments were not only watching the everyday folks, but also kept a close eye on notable celebrities and political figures, such as Charlie Chaplin, John Lennon, Princess Diana, and Angela Merkel. The Five Eyes Alliance has never intentionally been discussed with civilians, and there is doubt that the government ever will. But thanks to Edward Snowden and the documents he released to the public, we have a chance to learn about who is keeping tabs on us. As of today, the Five Eyes Alliance is still in effect and countries like Germany are vying to get in. So the next time you feel like someone is watching over your shoulder, perhaps they are actually watching through your screen. When we think about the dark side of the government, we tend to only consider how their actions affect us, the American people. But perhaps we should also consider the ripples their actions cause overseas. In 1953, Iran had a prime minister named Mohammad Mossadegh. He was voted in by the Iranian people by a popular vote and worked continuously to keep the wealth in the country since the oil reserves had been under British control. Britain tried to take back the oil reserves, but eventually lost. So they convinced American President Eisenhower and the CIA to intervene by convincing them that Mohammed was under communist control. That's when Operation Ajax was created. The mission was to stage a coup, a sudden, violent, and illegal seizure of power from the government in Iran and overthrow Mohammed Mossadegh. They succeeded in their mission. A man named Mohammad Reza Shah Pahlavi, an Iranian king, replaced Mossadegh and began ruling Iran as a monarchy. Pahlavi was chosen because he was in bed with Britain, the US, the Netherlands, France, and ultimately put the oil and wealth back into their hands. Greed can be a powerful motivator and can make people do despicable things to attain riches. Sometimes we alienate the loved ones in our lives because of it. Other times we alienate an entire country. Most of us are familiar with the horrors that occurred inside concentration camps during World War II, and most are also aware that American troops liberated the survivors and destroyed Hitler's regime. But what you may not know is that the CIA brought home a few new tricks. Many people have heard of MKUltra, the CIA-run program that replicated Nazi experiments examining psychoactive drugs in an interrogation method. These tests were conducted on both willing and unwilling participants. It seems too easy to access information about MKUltra, but that's because it's supposed to be. Alongside MKUltra, there was another operation underway called Project Artichoke, which was far more sinister than MKUltra. 
the CIA created Operation Dormouse, whose central objective was to distract from Project Artichoke and put all the focus on MK Ultra, since the latter was affiliated with prestigious Ivy League colleges and was, for the most part, research-based. The scientists involved with Project Artichoke conducted experiments by using LSD, hypnosis, and total isolation as forms of psychological torture. Survivors of the program have no recollection of what happened to them as a result of forced amnesia. The targets of these experiments were homosexuals, racial minorities, and military prisoners whom the CIA believed were the weakest of the human race. The experiments conducted under Project Artichoke were done with a specific mission in mind, to turn test subjects into involuntary assassins. There are people in the world who turn to the supernatural for their answers and a certain sense of security. But an agency from within our government had disturbing plans to control those forces for their own benefit. MKUltra and Project Artichoke had a sister operation called MK Often. The intentions remained nearly the same except for minor differences. In Often, they routinely tested toxicological effects that certain drugs had on animal as well as human subjects. But these were no different than what companies employ laboratories to do today with hygiene and beauty products. However, MK Often explored what MK Ultra and Artichoke didn't. Gordon Thomas, an investigative journalist, wrote in his book Secrets and Lies that Operation Often had a mission to explore the world of black magic and harness the forces of darkness and challenge the concept that the inner reaches of the mind are beyond reach. From seances to rituals to remote viewing, there wasn't anything they weren't willing to make their subjects do. They had gone so far as to hire three full-time astrologers whose only job was to predict the future. The CIA consulted a self-proclaimed witch, psychic, and astrologer named Sybil Leek to help guide them through the spirit world. Although Sybil professed to not have anything to do with black magic, the CIA and Department of Defense had every intention of reaching the deepest pit of darkness in that world that they could. It's unclear if this project was ever shut down or if the government just stopped declassifying the documents. But knowing the power they possess, it's not impossible to think they're still searching for more. The Vietnam War was one of the ugliest, most devastating wars we have ever seen, with an estimated 3.8 million plus deaths. But this war could have certainly been avoided. In fact, it may have been deliberate. It was August of 1964 when an American destroyer reported that 26 torpedoes from a Vietnamese station had been launched at the American vessel. The men who detected the torpedoes kept a close eye on them while also alerting their superiors. The message of the incoming threat moved its way up the chain until it reached the White House. Soon, the men on the destroyer realized that it wasn't torpedoes after all, but rather malfunctioning sonar equipment. Quickly, the men relayed the information to the commanding officers that the previous detection was a mistake and for everyone to stand down while they investigate to make sure. But by the next day, then-President Lyndon B. Johnson had issued an attack on Vietnam, thus starting the war. There has been a lot of debate and speculation regarding the events in the Gulf of Tonkin, where the supposed torpedoes had been detected, and two lines of thought surround the situation. 
First is that the follow-up information about the failed equipment just didn't go up the chain fast enough to intervene before the announcement was made. But the second, a lot more unsettling, is that the misinterpreted torpedo incident was orchestrated to give the US a reason to attack Vietnam. If there was a way to stop that gruesome war from commencing, we should hope that our government would have taken it. But if the witnesses in the Gulf of Tonkin are correct, the government had already made up their minds. Once the US invaded Vietnam, they began taking out their enemies. Of course, there were troop-on-troop battles throughout the country, but the CIA had another plan of attack that targeted everyone, including civilians. One of the enemies of the US during the Vietnam War was an army that originated in South Vietnam called National Liberation Front, or Viet Cong. They were connected to the communist ideology, the ideology that America had been at war with the Soviet Union over for many years. Because of this, once America successfully invaded Vietnam, the CIA and several other branches of the military created the Phoenix Program. The mission was to find and neutralize anyone affiliated with the Viet Cong, even if it meant taking down innocent civilians. The mission rested on the shoulders of local government militia and police forces rather than the military. Instructions on how to deal with the prisoners of war were simple. Capture, convert, or kill. If the captives resisted conversion, several tortures were inflicted on them until death that included, but were not limited to, electric shocks to sensitive areas of the body, dog attacks, and various types of sexual abuses that involved things like eels, snakes, and hard objects. The orders didn't stop there, but eventually the war did. Both the veterans of the war and the people of Vietnam have worked to rebuild their lives and put the past behind them. The expectation of an elected official is that they use their power to do good in the world and hopefully right some wrongs. But sometimes we elect wicked people who make the world a little more horrifying. In March of 2011, Arkansas State Representative Justin Harris and his wife Marsha were looking to complete their family of five through adoption when they received a phone call from a distraught mother. The woman's three daughters were in the foster care system after her boyfriend had repeatedly sexually abused the eldest child. Social workers and friends warned the devout Christian parents that they weren't the best match for the traumatized little girls, but Justin used his political influence to force the adoption. Just weeks after being in the home, the Harris family was convinced the girls were possessed by demons and that the two youngest could communicate telepathically. The oldest girl, age six, was removed from their home after only a couple of months, leaving the two youngest, ages two and four, behind. The baby roamed the house freely, while the middle child was locked in her room for hours without toys or clothes, all while being monitored on video cameras. The babysitter could bring the imprisoned child food and water, but was instructed to not socialize with the girl. The Harrises even hired a professional exorcist, but nothing helped and eventually they had enough. 
Justin and Marsha rehomed the girls with their longtime friends Eric and Stacy Francis, but the girls' trust was broken yet again when Eric sexually abused the four-year-old not long after. The two youngest girls were legally adopted by a new, loving family, and the oldest is reportedly thriving in her separate adoption. Eric Francis is behind bars for the next 40 years, but the Harrises have yet to face consequences. Juan Ronaldo Sanchez served as Fidel Castro's bodyguard for 17 years and came to worship him like a god. But in 1988, on a warm day in Havana, Cuba, Sanchez's illusions came crashing down. Sanchez claims Castro had an affinity for betraying those closest to him. After directing an allegedly government-run cocaine operation and housing a smuggler, the United States became suspicious. Castro launched an official honest investigation and manipulated the court proceedings to frame his loyal colleague of 20 years, Jose Abrantes, to pay for the crime. Abrantes's firing squad execution was filmed at Castro's demand, and the tape was played in front of his entire staff, including Sanchez. After, the bodyguard officially retired, but was thrown in prison and tortured for several years for knowing too much. Castro was also responsible for the deaths of thousands of his own citizens, in addition to violating their human rights. After taking away religious freedom, due process of law, freedom of press, privacy, and easy access to medical care, according to the Cuba Archive Project, Castro was responsible for 10,000 deaths, using his own power to kill men, women, and children for opposing or trying to escape his regime. Juan Sanchez escaped to Miami from his Cuban prison cell and wrote a book chronicling his time as Fidel Castro's bodyguard. In November of 2016, Castro passed away, and many celebrated the death of a man who had killed so many. President Ashraf Ghani of Afghanistan left his vice president, General Abdul Rashid Dostum, in charge while on a business trip to Central Asia, a man the president had once regarded as a killer. General Dostum was at one point investigated for participating in a mass killing involving both civilians and prisoners. Violence was in his nature. During a game of Buskashi, General Dostum tracked down a political rival of three decades named Ahmad Ishi. Dostum's men took turns beating Ahmad with their fists and AK-47s until he lay bloody on the ground. Dostum put his foot on Ahmad's throat and threatened, I can kill you right now and no one will ask. Dostum and his men kidnapped Ahmad and brought him to his home as a prisoner. For five days, Ahmad suffered at the hands of his rival and his men, claiming they all tore off his clothes, beat him frequently, and raped him with the barrel of a Kalashnikov rifle, which later caused him internal bleeding. General Dostum was issued an arrest warrant and had his home surrounded by police, though he maintains he is constitutionally protected from prosecution. However, according to President Ashraf Ghani, his alleged crimes will be fully investigated. 
Illinois State Representative Keith Farnham claimed that as a child he was sexually abused and assaulted, but it seems he carried on that legacy by breeding more abuse on innocent children. On March 13, 2014, federal agents raided Keith's home looking for incriminating documents when they stumbled upon a plethora of child pornography. Police found 2,765 images of children in sexual situations, some as young as six months old. In addition to email exchanges and chat messages with other pedophiles discussing the lewd fantasies and experiences they'd had with children, Farnham described how he sexually abused a six-year-old girl before having sex with her mother, which he claimed was a mere fantasy. Another message read, 12 is about as old as I can handle. What I really like is 6, 7, 8. Keith stored the child pornography on computers and several state-owned external hard drives. While collecting these images, he ran a campaign encouraging parents to monitor their children's internet activity. He was even featured on a coloring book handed out to children to teach them about cyber stranger danger. Keith Farnham was sentenced to eight years in prison, though it's unlikely he will see any time behind bars as he is 68 years old and was diagnosed with pulmonary fibrosis and bladder cancer and has a short life expectancy. January 13, 2009 started off normally. Mayor Gary Becker of Racine, Wisconsin went to a suburban Milwaukee mall to make a few purchases purchases that later landed him in jail. Gary Becker, husband and father of two, had been chatting online with a 14-year-old girl, or so he thought. He made plans to meet up with the girl and take her to a hotel to, in his words, have lots of fun. First, he dropped by the mall to buy her special lingerie, nine pairs of juniors bras and panties. It was here where Mayor Gary Becker was arrested by the undercover cop who had posed as the girl he had been chatting with. Just a month prior, Gary made the mistake of asking city workers to fix his personal computer. The technician discovered pornographic images of girls he believed were well underage, along with over 1,800 sexually explicit chats from Becker. Gary Becker was sentenced to 114 years in prison and was fined $370,000 for second-degree sexual assault of a child under 16 and possession of child pornography, among many other charges. However, he was released three years later under GPS monitoring and is not allowed to have contact with minors. Philippine President Rodrigo Duterte is wreaking havoc on his citizens. What started as a crusade against drugs has turned into an outright killing spree across the country. Duterte has run an unrelenting, violent campaign against drugs, urging police to kill any suspected users. The violence from authorities and vigilantes has caught many family members and friends in the crossfire. Five-year-old Danica May Garcia was getting out of the bath when attackers came for her grandfather, shooting her with a bullet through her neck and killing her almost instantly. Duterte calls these dead children collateral damage and has yet to back down from his malicious war, recently passing a bill that drops the criminal age from 15 to 9 years old. The president has said he would kill his own children if he found they were involved with drugs and has likened himself to Hitler, saying he would be happy to slaughter 3 million 
drug users. Rodrigo Duterte is still in charge of the people of the Philippines and shows no signs of stopping his violent regime anytime soon. As of 2016, over 8,000 people have been killed as a direct result of his campaign. Kim Jong-un has taken after his father, Kim Jong-il, in more ways than one, but it is his execution methods that stand out on the list of inherited traits. Many family members and top officials in Jong-un's inner circle have either gone missing or have been killed. He called his uncle factionalist filth after executing him for interfering in his decisions as the new leader of North Korea. Jong-un also had his brother, Kim Jong-nam, killed, hiring two women to smear VX nerve agent all over his face. Within 20 minutes on the way to the hospital, Nam passed away. In large doses, XV nerve agent can cause convulsions, loss of consciousness, paralysis, and respiratory failure. But Jong-un's preferred method of execution utilizes military-grade anti-aircraft guns, machine guns, and flamethrowers. During the official mourning period of Kim Jong-il, a military officer was caught drinking and was sentenced to death. A short-range mortar firing squad carried out his execution, according to one source, leaving no trace of him behind, down to his hair. This is the only glimpse into the horrific reign of Kim Jong-un. Of all the people his father left to guide him as a ruler, very few are left alive today, and he's made it clear even those closest to him are not safe from his cruel and unusual punishments, and neither are his citizens. Jails are known for being overcrowded with prisoners incarcerated for everything from theft to murder. People like Judge Mark Chavarella put criminals away, but in this case, the judge became the convicted. Mark and his partner Michael Conahan concocted a plot to wrongfully put away children in privately owned juvenile detention centers in order to turn a profit. One of the over 6,000 victims was Hillary Transu, who created a MySpace page mocking the assistant principal at her high school in 2007 and was later locked away for it by Mark. Other children were convicted for things such as stealing a jar of nutmeg or even trespassing in a vacant building. Most of the time, they didn't have attorneys and had to defend themselves. The scheme brought in $2.8 million, which Mark and his partner Michael happily shared. Both men were charged and convicted for their crimes, and the former judge will be disbarred from the system and serve 28 years in prison. As for the 6,000 kids wrongfully imprisoned, they are likely glad to see him on the other side of the bench. Kremlin critics are a specific group of people who work to expose and bring down corrupted Russian government. Unfortunately for them, the government seems to be taking them out one by one. There have been numerous deaths of political figures, journalists, liaisons, and influential citizens, all critics of President Vladimir Putin, and all dying under suspicious circumstances. In 2012, a member of the Kremlin critics who exposed the Russian government's tax fraud was out for a jog when he dropped dead. At 44 years old, he was in great health, but the police didn't find his death suspicious. 
even though there were traces of a rare and poisonous plant in his stomach. In 2006, ex-KGB and Kremlin critic Alexander Litvinenko met with a couple of men who would help him incriminate the Russian mafia. However, the meeting ended with Alexander in the hospital, dying from being poisoned by a radioactive substance known as plutonium-210. Though no evidence has linked him and no official record exists, there is a strong suspicion that Vladimir Putin and his regime are behind the murders. In Mother Russia, it seems any slight against its leaders is a mark on your life. Teodoro Obiang Ngema Mbasogo is Equatorial Guinea's longest-serving leader. In 1979, he overthrew and murdered his uncle, Francisco Macias Ngema, after discovering his plans to kill his entire family. Obiang had the chance to improve life in Equatorial Guinea, but instead became the worst dictator that Africa has ever seen. Though Obiang has committed corruption, electoral fraud, and money embezzlement, he has remained in power for 38 years. Perhaps his most disturbing claims are that his power comes from eating his opponents. One purported victim was a police commissioner who was found buried without testicles or a brain. Others claim he skins his rivals alive and eats their livers. Obiang claims to have godlike powers and believes he will never end up behind bars or in hell because he is God, and it is God who gives him his strength. Equatorial Guinea's communities are some of the most deprived in all of Africa, despite their president living an extravagant lifestyle. The downfall of Teodoro Obiang would mean the end to so many oppressions and injustices, but bringing a tyrant down is easier said than done. Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow the Seriously Strange podcast so you don't miss what we've got in store for you. Watch the shadows and stay alive out there. Thanks to all of you for your support. The Seriously Strange podcast is made possible due in part to contributions made by our listeners like you. So if you would like to keep the Seriously Strange podcast online and accessible, please consider pressing the link that says support the show in the description of any podcast episode. You can then choose your preferred way to donate and send a contribution our way because we can't do this without our listeners' support. If you decide to contribute, it's tremendously appreciated and we thank you so much. We read every single message included with each contribution, so feel free to include your comments or even make a request for a future topic. Thanks for listening. We've got a lot more in store for you. Take care and enjoy your next episode.